Harvard Divinity School. The Climate of the Future, November 22, 2021.
We're so happy that you're here to join us. And I have to tell you, I'm so excited about Stan Robinson being here that I'm extremely nervous. And if I jump the gun, it's only because of, of that. So good evening. Uh, we are in the climate of now. I'm Terry Tempest Williams, writer and residence at Harvard Divinity School. And on behalf of all of us here, we welcome you from the Center of the Study of World Religions, from Religion and Public Life, uh, Planetary Health Alliance, and the Constellation Project. In this season of gratitude, you certainly have ours. And thank you, dear Brian Kerbos of Theosophy, for the reminder of tea as an act of hospitality, allowing us to ponder each week what is beautiful alongside a healing grace. Tonight is our ninth weather report. It's hard to believe that we started in September and we are now in November. We've traveled far together from the fires in California with filmmaker Lucy Walker to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge with Gwich'in advocate Bernadette Dementiev to the intersectionality of climate and our ethical response and responsibilities as citizens with Morgan Curtis and Bronte Velez transforming guns into shovels that plant trees as a stay against violence. We move to the wise Buddhist scholar, Janet Gyatso, advocating for our compassion and understanding in the sentience of all beings. To the eloquence and depth of Victoria Chang as she spoke about grief as motion settled around our mothers, especially Mother Earth, to the spirit and clarity of Michael Pollan, discussing our minds on plants, to thoughts on resistance and power and love in the name of family with Chloe Arigis in London and Wanjira Mathai in Kenya, to the integrity of journalist Elizabeth Colbert, who found and finds the strength to not look away from the bare bone facts of the sixth extinction beneath a white sky storytellers, all of them, bringing their weather reports from the front lines of their lived experiences with the insights of our respondents and certainly with your crucial and collective energy. Together, we have journeyed inside the climate of now. And tonight, we find ourselves in the climate of the future with this stellar science fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson and his epic novel, The Ministry for the Future. For those of you in the audience tonight who've not read this novel yet, I thought that a few reviews and comments to set tonight's conversations might be helpful to set the context. The Rolling Stone magazine said, quote, who knew that in this dark hour of the climate crisis, hope would arrive in the form of a 563 page novel by a science fiction writer, best known for a trilogy about establishing a human civilization on Mars. It's a trip through the carbon-fueled chaos of the coming decades, with engineers working desperately to stop melting glaciers from sliding into the sea, avenging eco-terrorists, downing so many airlines that people are afraid to fly, and bankers reinventing the economy in real time in a desperate attempt to avert extinction. And then the Los Angeles Review of Books writes, quote, Robinson calls on us to imagine living through a revolution ourselves as we are in the here and now. Kim Stanley Robinson, our culture's last great utopian, 
hasn't lost heart exactly, but he's definitely getting deep into the muck of these things this time. I particularly like what they said here. The ministry of the title is a subsidiary body of the United Nations tasked with, quote, to advocate for the world's future generations of citizens whose rights as defined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are as valid as our own. And further, quote, charged with defending all living creatures, present and future, who cannot speak for themselves by promoting their legal standing and physical protection, end quote. They are in short bureaucrats, a job description, Mary Murphy, the Irish heroine, neither lionized nor denigrates. They are the smart but boring people tasked with crafting the smart but boring rules that will one day govern life on our post-normal planet as it struggles to decarbonize. Bill McKidden in the New Yorker reports, the ministry for the future is not science fiction as much as political science. Robinson is adept at writing the psychology of our country right now. And the last review fragment I want to share with you is from the Yale Climate Connections. Robinson is a writer who does his research. His work is often pegged as hard science fiction for the level of detail with which he writes about social and technological advances, but he's equally known for his optimism. Tonight's respondent, Sarah Dimmick, an extraordinary scholar at Harvard's Department of English who specializes in climate fiction, gave us a very succinct synopsis. Quote, a story of a small underfunded UN agency that because of its internal moxie manages to make the innovative radical changes necessary for a climatically altered world. Amen. So let's get right to the proper introduction of Stan Robinson. The New Yorker called Robinson the greatest political novelist of our time. He is author of 20 books translated in 24 languages and has received every possible award in the genre of science fiction, including the Hugo Award for Best Novel, the Nebula Award for Best Novel, and the World Fantasy Award. Robinson's also received the Robert A. Heinlein Award for his body of work and the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Imagination in the Service of Society. Isn't that beautiful? Imagination in the Service of Society. The Atlantic has labeled Robinson's work as, quote, the gold standard of realistic and highly literary science fiction writing. I think it's important to know that he's been mentored by some of the great writers of our time, from postmodernist Frederick Jameson, a Marxist political theorist, to literary icon Ursula Le Guin, and to the poet Gary Snyder. By Stan Robinson's Odin mission, he is a, quote, Sierra person, unquote, who is backpacked into the high Sierras with more than 50 trips under his feet. The High Sierra, a love story, a work of exquisite nonfiction will be out this spring. And I just got this in the mail a few days ago. I finished it and it is such a beautiful book. And I think it explains so much of the groundedness of the author we're going to be speaking with tonight. Welcome Stan. What a joy and privilege to have you here tonight. I can hardly wait to have our conversation. Thank you very much for that, Terry. It's a big pleasure to be with you. Um, I have loved your books and it's really a pleasure to be talking with you. What's, thank you. What's the weather report where you are? Uh, well, uh, 
Northern California facing a drought could have been desperate and it still might be, but an atmospheric river slung across last month and dropped a huge load of rain. And we hope for more this winter, but um, it's a, a dire situation in California because it's really a space that has been plumbed for water. The water that's here is artificially supplied by human transfers and um, it relied on things staying the way they were when the system was built. And, but there's historical signs of droughts that have lasted as decades. And we had a five-year drought that we were just out of when this one began. So uh, the next winter will tell the tale, um, but I find it frightening. Um, there's 35 million people in California and they all need water. I suppose we could shut down the most water, um, the thirstiest of the agricultures in the Central Valley, save water for people. But when there's no water, everything shuts down. So I would say it's an, an alarming situation. It, you know, it's the same in Utah. It, it's really terrifying. And, yeah. you know, I'd love to begin this conversation with the High Sierras. And I finished your book last night, The High Sierra, A Love Story. I wasn't planning on finishing it. I was just planning on dabbling it. And I really didn't get any sleep. I just went right through it. And I have to tell you, it answered so many questions, um, chief among them, what has brought you to this level of care and precision as both a writer and human being regarding the climate crisis? And I kept wondering, how is his description of the glaciers so vivid? And why would you, you know, devote an entire chapter in the Ministry for the Future to the Sixth Extinction? And honestly, your nonfiction book that will be out in the spring of 2020 answered those questions to me, that you're a man in love with the world. And I'm wondering if, just briefly, because we could spend our whole time talking about this, but can you talk about the influence of hiking in the Sierras on you? And specifically, you tell a story of hiking across the top of Dead Man's Canyon in August of 2021, last summer. Yep. And being struck by the changes that you saw from when you had last been in there in 2007. And I'm wondering if you could share this moment with our audience when you experienced the last remaining glacier. Yes, I hope I can. It's still very emotional for me. It was a shocking thing to see. Um, and you can see on the map, the top of Dead Man Canyon had seven small glaciers, even glacierettes they're called, because they don't slide much, but they're there in place tucked against a, a north facing wall at maybe a 45 degree angle. And they were all gone. It was as dry as a bone in the southwestern part of the Sierra Sequoia National Park. And rivers that we had been frightened to cross, we could simply walk down into the black trench and walk up the other side. They were dry as a bone. But to see the glaciers gone was to say that the, the um, long-term prospects for that upper basin were poor. And there was one little fragment left. So I went up to it and said goodbye to it, got our water for the evening. We would have had a dry night without it. So it supplied us that night and it gurgled away all night long. Like like when your toilet flap doesn't work and it's sort of, you hear that sound of running water all night long. Um, disturbing, very disturbing. And I was so shocked and dismayed. I, I thought I would be dead before something like this happened. Um, 
it took me a while to pull it together. And I have to give credit to my friend Armando Quintero, who's now head of the California State Parks and is an old friend um, who's taught me a lot about the Sierras. He was a ranger up there. And he reminded me that since the Ice Age ended, the High Sierras has been a sky island. And like Utah, there have been droughts that have lasted nearly 100 years. And so the survivors up there are the plant life, the animals are extremophiles separate from the rest. They're so high, they're always going to get a little precipitation off the Pacific. It's not necessarily the case that everything up there will die. There will be stresses, there will be changes, there will be more of a zero escape than it ever was. But um, the Sierras are used to radical climate change and with luck, um, cooler times will come back. So he, he pulled me back in. But I felt the emotion of that experience. And, you know, when you call it a love story, I felt like for me, it culminated in that moment of just your gesture of sitting with the glacier and in my own imagination, your hand on that glacier um, and your lament. It, it touched me deeply. And I have to tell you, Stan, that, you know, coming out of last summer about that same time that you were saying goodbye to that glacier, um, in rural Utah in the Red Rock Desert with temperatures of 114 degrees, 10,000 acres burning, 20 miles from our home with pyrocumulus clouds rising like atomic bombs, followed by flash floods with a river running black out of one of your novels um, through the town of Moab. Um, I read the Ministry of the Future as hard edge journalism. Mm. And when I think of science fiction, you know, I think of fantasy. But this novel, The Ministry for the Future, is not a fantasy. In many ways, it feels prophetic. Can you talk about this and why you chose to place it in the near future, 2025? Well, science fiction is a big genre. It's various and it has a huge stretch in, in terms of um, quality, interest, story type, and also temporality in that um, there's a kind of science fiction that is millions of years from now and, and we're zipping around the galaxy in magical spaceships. This is a kind of a fantasy space that sometimes gets called space opera. And um, a lot of people, because of movies and the prevalence of Star Wars and Star Trek, think that science fiction is nothing but that. But there's been always a very strong strand of what I call near future science fiction that has to do with day after tomorrow, the feeling that now itself is a science fiction novel or an experience that needs to be captured by these metaphors of I am turning into a robot or time is accelerating or uh, enjambments into the present that are much like poetry or their symbols like poetry has symbols. Um, the two kinds of science fiction can coexist on the same shelf and people can enjoy both of them, but they're quite different in their purposes. There's also an in-between zone that I've been very interested in. What's it going to be like 100 years out or 200 years out? That's a depopulated zone in the, in the literature, in the mm -hmm. genre, because it's harder and stranger. I like it and I call it future history. But in this case, um, everything, even 200 years out, is going to be... Um, overdetermined by climate change. So slowly but surely, and I'll be interested to hear what Sarah has to say about this. Um, near future science fiction has by necessity, the, by the reality principle turned into climate fiction 
it's it, the planet will enforce a certain history on us we can't do otherwise but respond to the emergency that we've created so i've been trying to write about that for most of this um the 2000s i wrote green earth in the early part of the century then i wrote uh, new york 2140 for sure aurora shaman these are books that are um about climate one way or another and then Ministry for the Future was finally ranging into, well, what could we do starting right now, facing the gravity of the situation? Could I write a best case scenario where we squeak through without an extinction event that you could still believe in while you were reading it? So this is utopian fiction in our time. The bar has been lowered to, if we dodge a mass extinction event, this is a utopian future because that's the one catastrophe that we can never claw back from extinctions are forever and even if you imagine some clawing back in the 22nd century from disastrous 21st century whatever goes extinct will be gone for good so dodging that is to me the the way of organizing our efforts that's what i would say it will be good for people if we dodge a mass extinction event humans themselves will also be spared enormous suffering. So it's been an organizing principle. I tried to follow in the ministry along with all the other strands. It was obviously a braiding together of many strands to try to tell a, a future history going out about 30 years where um, there was that best case scenario. I don't know how you, you know, because again, in so many ways, it is prophetic, the atmospheric rivers, the wet bulb effect. I'm I was just stunned by the first 12 pages. And I think that was a brave decision. Um, you got our attention. Can you talk about that? Yes, and thank you for that. Although it is indeed a brutal beginning, particularly since I'm known as a utopian writer and an optimistic guy, although I'm well aware that optimism is code for a little bit obtuse and perhaps stupid, um, but in our culture. But in any case, the beginning, when I read about wet bulb 35 temperatures being fatal to humans um, without electrical help, you know, air conditioning, I was stunned. All this talk of adaptation was wrong. And there was a lot of it that, oh, well, humans are so good. If we happen to hit 3.5 degrees, then we'll just adapt, 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 adapt. These were economists, um, people in the humanities, people who were ideological in a bad way, who wanted to slight the efforts to mitigate. And when I read about the wet bulb 35, I thought all that is just crap. Um, we cannot let the temperature get much higher or people will die in mass numbers. I was frightened and I wrote the scene out of that fear. And I thought, let's start with this and see, since something like that could very easily happen in the next five years, and I'm terrified that it will, um, that won't be the one and only change agent. And it won't be true that if we have a mass death somewhere in the tropics, that the whole of humanity will suddenly get their act together. We're not that way, but it could stimulate some quite uh, powerful reactions. So I did it. Which it does. I mean, in many ways, it drives the narrative of, of the novel. It's set in India, 20 million people are killed, poached to use your yeah. words. And yeah. one of the survivors becomes um, a moral force um, that really penetrates Mary Murphy's consciousness. Um, and I, 
you know, I feel like those were the two main characters. But again, you've brilliantly done this polyphonic uh, symphony of witnesses. And I loved how, again, in the LA Review of Books, it says the brilliance of the ministry for the future is that it knows there is no one solution to the fundamental problem of human psychology. Some people in novel need eco-religion. Some people need scientific debate. Some people need to be convinced there's more money in a sustainable future than in a civilizational collapse. Some people only respond to violence, like it or not. There are many roads to enlightenment. The novel seems to be suggesting pick whichever road will take you there and go. How did you come up with that structure in your 106 chapters? Many of them very short, many of them subscribed to the sun, to a proton, you know, um, to creatures. How did, how did this come to you? I felt as though Stan, as I was reading it, I was looking through a kaleidoscope and with each turn of the wrist, it was another thought experiment. Mm. Yes, thank you. Um, there was a form problem for sure. I wanted it to be a novel about world history at the global level covering 30 years. Well, the novel is very capacious and versatile. I have a total belief in it. Nevertheless, that's a form problem because you need characters and you need, um, one reads a novel to kind of um, get inside someone other person's head by way of telepathy as we'd put it in science fiction. Uh, and that's so important that you can't ignore it without um, desiccating it emotionally. So, okay, I had Mary and Frank as a dynamic and felt very transgressive. Their relationship to me was frightening uh, to follow out, but I decided that that's an interesting story and it would form like the spine of the novel. Like maybe it's novella length. They keep coming back to it, Mary and Frank through the whole 30 years almost. Um, then I could hang on that as a strong spine what I called the eyewitness reports. When I discovered that the eyewitness report is a genre of its own that is not like fiction, um, that boggled my mind and gave me my tool. People in an eyewitness report are being interviewed often. It's often 10 or 20 years later. They're looking back on something they now realize is important. Maybe at the time they did too. They talk about what it meant to their life and what it meant to history and what has happened since. And all in this very compact way. They don't tell you what they had at for breakfast on the morning of the revolution, they cut to the chase. And as a stylistic device for a novel that needed a lot, I liked it. And I began to channel voices. It was an extraordinary experience, about four months of channeling voices, um, one of the best writing experiences of my life. And you have to abandon your fear that you're ignorant of other people, because we are. You can never actually be inside the other, but you can try. So um, the grimness of the material also made me think, where's the fun here? Because novels are intended to give one a certain amount of entertainment. The play of forms. When you start one of these 106 chapters, is it an Anglo-Saxon riddle? Is it a BBC radio transcript? Is it an eyewitness account? Is it, um, God knows what, a Wikipedia article or some tangentious jerk going ranting on about something or other? You don't know till you start reading. Quickly, you're oriented into that thing. Then it's over. You're on to the next one. And then I like this image of the kaleidoscope that you gave me. It is like that. And one of the things about kaleidoscopes is that you, you focus on one colored shard, but you're aware that there's all these other shards around there. And then when you turn it, that kind of tumbles and they all still 
uh, illuminate the others as a totality, hopefully. So it was a it was a roll of the dice. Uh, uh, I mean, when I made my giant sheets of paper with all of the chapters and tried to put them in order, I actually moved over to a whiteboard so I could erase better. And I had colored uh, pens for the different styles and and tried to um, work it out there. My editor helped me and I, I gave it a few tries and got it into a sequence. I, I would think that you could probably sequence it slightly differently and get the same effect. It's not truly chronological, but um, whatever, it's done. I mean, how do you hold an epic novel like this with all these shards, as you say, and talk to your wife at dinner? You know, I mean, I just, I, I'm sorry to reveal this, but I just kept thinking, what were you like while you were writing this? Because I just, I've never, I mean, I've been telling people, you know, this is the most impactful novel I've read in decades, and I mean it. And I just, I can't imagine inhabiting all of these voices and issues and the research and the science and the politics and the economy, you know, was this different for you as a writer on this level with this kind of complexity from your other novels? No, not really. It came at the end of a long stretch of study, maybe 25 years of working the same veins. Um, I didn't have to do much research. It was already there. I wrote it in 2019. It was pre-pandemic and it was back in the era of Trump. It's quite a bit darker than what I would write now, which is a comforting thought. But I was absorbed, and certainly my wife says in the last couple of months where I go into a kind of overdrive of revision where I can work from dawn till when I fall asleep without getting tired. That is to say, when I'm writing first draft, I can do a couple of hours and then I'm done for the day and it's time to go for a run or go to my garden. But when I'm revising, I can work as long as I'm awake. And so at that point, she kind of takes over. I, for our whole careers together, um, our whole marriage, I've been sort of the Mr. Mom, the home parent, took care of our boys, did the, the stuff one does at home while she had a, an extremely intense uh, career as a chemist for U.S. Geological Survey. And like many scientists, has gone um, many hours every day, a hard worker. Um, but when it came to the end of my book, she always would kind of realize I was going to disappear into a, a frenzy. But I, I'll say this about ministry. When I solved the form problem and the voices began to speak, um, despite the grimness of the material and, and the extreme danger, as a writing experience, it was a kind of a euphoria. Um, I knew I was, I knew I was succeeding at what I had tried for. And I've tried some novels, including climate fiction, where I knew that I wasn't succeeding as I um, crawled to the end of certain novels in my life and, and uh, got out alive, but barely live. This wasn't I, like that. I have to say there were in those chapters, humor that rang true to me, you know, when the, the acidification of the ocean and one of the characters said, you know, with all of the omega oils, you know, and the fish dying, you know, what are we going to do? You know, just where the lens is, is focused on, on, um, on them, which I think is so much about where we are, the solipsistic nature of us as human beings. I was at this um, neighbor's house and we were talking about climate and how terrifying it was. And she said, you know, Terry, the one good thing is that seersucker will come back. <laughs> you know, and I just thought, you know, one of your characters could have said that. Yep. But 
I have two more questions for you in the time that we have. The first question is about violence and the limits of, of nonviolence portrayed in the novel. And just as that, you know, for me, the metaphor is, is the, the kaleidoscope. It also had the effect on me that when I went away from your novel, it was still in my DNA. It was still in my vision. And it was like I took the kaleidoscope with me and there it was again. And I, I wanted to share with you an image from the visual artist, Christina Seeley, who's a graduate student at the Harvard Divinity School now that I just thought you might appreciate. She currently has a show at the Anchorage Museum through September um, 2020 called Dissonance and Disturbance. And it's an image from this recent work. And her work is, is situated in the Arctic and in the tropics. But when um, I'm going to ask for the image to come forward. And I just couldn't help, but you'll know exactly um, what reference I'm making. Could we see that slide now? Oh my. Yep. <clears throat> what do you see when you see this? Well, um, when you reference uh, Ministry for the Future, then there is a chapter that describes a completely screwed up 2030s where it's obvious we aren't doing what we need to do. And um, drones start gathering in swarms like, like geese in front of uh, airplanes as they land and take off and brings a lot of them down on a single day, crash day. And this is a kind of impetus that gets people to stop flying and, and also aware that there's a terrible uh, forces have been unleashed in the world, that there's anger, uh, that people who have been at the short end of the stick who've suffered because the developed world didn't bother to pay for decarbonization and clean energy for the developing world, which is happening now, that this uh, is going to cause retribution and vengeance. I'm against it myself, and it's been a problem with the book. You need to read Andreas Malm's um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, you need to pay attention to what Bill McKibben is saying about the power of nonviolent resistance as being the only way that will succeed. There's an uh, argument going on now in activist circles that I'm super interested in. And I don't think Ministry for the Future helps clarify that argument, except that it's another, it's a sample of what could happen, that it's gonna, that could get chaotic in bad ways. And it would be better if we acted before things got that dire. Yeah. But I have to tell you again, you know, when you said you wanted a near future that we could believe in, I believed you with this. Mm. Thank you. Um, let's take the slide off. A and yes, it was troubling, but it also, I think it asked the question, what are the limits of nonviolence? And the Dean of our Divinity School, David Hampton, who's Irish, has a question in two parts about violent protest yeah. arising out of the book. And I want you to know, a lot of us are talking about the Ministry for the Future of the Div School and teaching it. And from his experiences growing up in Northern Ireland during, Northern Ireland during the Troubles, he has this question for you. Do you think that well-established and unjust structures of power can be changed by peaceful protest? Or do arms only get twisted by the threat of force or by force itself? And if force is used, do you think that violence corrupts all who participate in it in deep ways 
that unfold over time and only perpetuate the evils they hope to change. I would, I would agree with the last part of that question that um, there is um, such damage done by violence against humans that the backlash is uh, as bad as everything that was hoped. There have been violent revolutions in the past, world revolutions that um, it's hard to rate their effectiveness because they're the only things that happened. Uh, but Northern Ireland is a great example of um, couldn't it have been done better by peaceful means and murder is never justified under any circumstances for any cause. So what's interesting about Malm and McKibben is this in-between zone. What about Peace Force and Satyagraha um, or Force Peace, Graha Satya as my character Badim. Badim is the one that lives this horrible pressurized conundrum in my novel. And indeed he's the understory of the ministry for the future, the black ops guy. What did he really authorize? What did he do? His last visit to the children of Kali is I think one of the strongest chapters in the book in personal terms, but for real world stuff, I'm hearing about um, people gluing themselves to the glass doors of uh, financial uh, hedge funds that that invest in fossil fuels. I'm hearing of basically pe peaceful, civil, non-resistance, and also questions of sabotage against property as opposed to violence against people. Can that distinction be held? Is it valid? Could it be put to use? Could it mm, keep a moral force behind the resistance to the destruction of the earth? Um, you know, that is of... I, when you talked about that, this now it has echoes of Ed Abbey. You know, that was his distinction with the monkey wrench gang, that sabotage was against machinery, yeah. um, not people. So it's interesting to me that, that you bring this, that idea of sabotage into the 21st century with climate chaos. And I would say that, um, again, I wrote Ministry in 2019. Malm had not yet published his book. I hadn't thought these things through. The book is a mess on purpose and by accident. Um, I wanted it to be as chaotic as history itself so that it felt real while hunting out a best case scenario. Um, if you could imagine the ministry without the violence and things still going right, that would be the preferred option for us in the real world because this is just a scenario. And I don't think the book is making the case that we have to have violence for progress to be made. I think it's making the case that if we don't make progress, violence will follow inevitably. And um, again, I would take it as a case study rather than an, uh, an educational instrument. There's that part in the book toward the end where what is called for is a spiritual awakening. Yes. And, and to me, that was the redemptive part. That was the part that as part of the mosaic, I could hang on to, you know, that what is the spiritual aspect of imagining a different world and how do we put that into action? It also made me think about what do we do with our anger, which you bring up, and how do we take our anger and turn it into sacred rage? So I think you've given us so many, not only scenarios, but things to consider that we aren't talking about. And in that way, I, I feel so much in your debt for the work you've done the last question I have, Stan, is, you know, the big one for me, and I don't understand it, but you do. 
you dedicate the ministry for the future to Frederick Jameson, a Marxist political theorist, who said, who is said to have uttered this oft-quoted um, phrase, someone once said that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And Stan, you show us in your writings and talks that the system we are living in is, it, is destroying people in the biosphere, in a word, the planet. The human problem is the environmental problem. So I'd love to hear in the last 10 minutes or whatever you wanna say about it, you know, what are your thoughts on a post-capitalistic society and how do you see us fixing the problem? And by making the central banks, and this was fascinating to me because you know, you're very open about yourself as a Marxist and as a member of the Socialist Party. Um, by making the central banks one of the heroes in the Ministry for the Future, what are you advocating for in real time and place? Sure. Um, I would take it in a stepwise manner. And I would also describe myself as an American leftist, um, trained by a Marxist member of the DSA, happy to be so. Um, but let's take the system that we're in now and the emergency that we've got. What do we do in a practical sense, taking the labels off of it? Well, this latest Biden um, uh, spending bill that the House passed, that hopefully the Senate will pass, that's huge. So um, you go against austerity, against neoliberalism, against the idea that the market can do this by market logic. That's wrong. 40 years of that being wrong has been proved conclusively. We need government seizure of the market. And like what happened in World War II, the British treasury took over the Bank of England. The American economy was organized entirely by the government to uh, prosecute the war successfully. Everybody went along with it because it was needed. So this was Keynes, John Maynard Keynes. Keynesianism for our time is maybe sometimes modern monetary theory. The central banks, make up new money. And in this case, they spend it on decarbonizing projects. A couple, maybe $4 trillion a year, year after year, made up from scratch and spent on decarbonizing projects, which would mean a giant public works administration and full employment, um, a raising of standards of living. And it wouldn't be the total solution. You would need to have regulations. You would need to have legislation. It'd be nice to have a big carbon tax that got bigger as time went on. Um, there should be a floor of adequacy that this country sadly lacks. It could be called social welfare or social democracy, as in Scandinavia, where um, you're not allowed to fall into immiseration because you're mentally ill. I hate that with a passion. And a floor could be set easily. So this is uh, not exactly socialism. Call it social democracy or just plain old left politics, uh, a floor set, also a ceiling. Um, there's no reason to be 10 times richer than, 10 times richer than adequacy is as much as you need to be before you're into the land of luxury. And beyond that, it's just stupid. So um, progressive taxation, very sharp progressive taxation on both corporates and individuals. This would need to be worldwide. That would be, so there would be no escape clauses or getting out. Um, digital money, so you could follow money into dark corners and maybe erase it. Um, in other words, there is a political economy that is um, uh, goes stepwise from what we're in now to anti-austerity, to Keynesianism, to social democracy, to maybe democratic socialism. But this would be these would be new inventions financialized. It's best maybe to call it post-capitalism. 
and not put a label on it from the 19th century, but just uh, improvise something that works so that there's equality, equity, and sustainability. You talk about, um, you say we're going to have to pay to keep it in the ground, meaning oil and gas. Yes. And can, I thought that caught my eye, you know, especially in the West where we're looking at federal lands, public lands, and these oil and gas leases. And you talked about the idea of quantitative easing. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes, and thank you. You surprised me with that because I thought this was a new thought, but clearly um, it's been in the book and it's become more prominent to me. Um, quantitative easing is exactly these central banks making up new fiat money that is spent on decarbonization in this case. So it's carbon quantitative easing and quantitative easing was proved to work in 2008 and in the pandemic, a um, whole lot of money made up from scratch to keep this economy liquid and keep people at work. If it was spent on decarbonization, all the better. Um, but the, it's gonna have to pay to keep it in the ground. That thought has become very prominent in me having watched COP26. 80% mm -hmm. of the fossil fuels on this planet are owned by nation states. They're powerful. They rely on that more or less, often more, that fossil fuel reserves are their future, it's their um, economy, it's their um, finance reserves. If, they, if, if those become stranded assets, those countries in terrible trouble headed for depression and disruption and violence, they've gotta be paid off. The petro states, and I'm saying Russia, Canada, Australia, Venezuela, Brazil, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, um, the United States has got 75% of the capital in the world. It should be the one actually backing the payouts and taking the loss itself. It's not so bad for the U.S. For many of these other petro states, if they have to hold on to their fossil fuels, they need to be compensated or else the world goes smash. So this gets very strange. This is like, um, oh, we got to, it's like paying off a blackmailer. It's like paying extortion money. But um, we all grew up on the burning of fossil fuels. Um, it isn't true that any of us is innocent. And so we got to give up on the moralism or the holier than thou feeling of, well, I'm a self-righteous person, a liberal person, and I hate this fossil fuel stuff. And I, I shout and scream against the Exxon and against um, Russia, you know, traditional villains. Um, on the other hand, Canada, Australia, China, the petro states are crucial. And so there's gonna to have to be a financial dispensation that keeps the whole system going. And that means pay, getting paid for keeping it in the ground. Thank you for, for sharing this and so lightning fast. I have two more huge questions with lightning. I'll do, yeah. Flash, like password. Yep. Um, how do you feel about nuclear energy? Well, I think we ought to take a really close look at these really small thorium reactors and see if they do pencil out. It's an all hands on deck situation. If nuclear um, pencils out as um, providing clean energy and it's steady and it's needed, um, why not? And a bridge for one more century. And then when we get to a greater place in two centuries, we can maybe phase them out for now. Maybe we need to reconsider nuclear and put some small ones in there. You know, this is one of the things that your book did for me is you put everything on the table. And so I was able to come out of my positions and think what 
what are what are our options? You know, given what happened in India of the death of 20 million people, um, yeah. it, it it really changed me in terms of allowing me to think in a broader scale and system. My last question to you, Sam, I mean, um, Stan, is just, I won't be able to sleep tonight. And I know this is an unfair question, but, you know, the, going back to the spiritual aspects, um, what keeps you whole, you know, spiritually? So well, optimistic, as well as a pragmatic visionary that, that can look at the hard things, that can ask the difficult questions that keep us up at night? My optimism is partly biochemical and comes from my mom, very clearly. Um, it's also political, a matter of uh, a, cho a chosen political position to beat people with that if we can make a good future, we should. And so pessimism is a failing. Uh, so that's optimism. Um, and kept a, going by my family and friends, my garden, the Sierras, the sense that uh, California is a uh, political multicultural entity that is progressive, that is recreating the commons for its water, that is a place to be proud of and, to, and it's so beautiful. Um, in other words, I feel well situated and um, that my political representation, while not perfect, especially at the federal level, is better than most political representation on, on this planet and through history. It's all, you know, you, you've got to, we are in such a dangerous position of hitting these planetary boundaries and blowing up the world for the generations to come. Um, it is very easy to get frightened and I'm often frightened. I, I write out of fear and anger and then um, the, the, the sentences create an optimistic front that is there to uh, bludgeon people with the idea that hope is a valid and, and necessary political position, especially prosperous people in the West. If we become cynical, pessimistic, and negative, what about all those people in the developing world or even the refugee populations who stay sane and keep joking? I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the power of your imagination that is in fact serving society. And I want to thank you personally, Stan, for allowing me to believe once again in the continuum and, and to fight for that. So thank blessings. You, and Thank I'm you. so excited to introduce you to um, dear Sarah. And, uh, and she will continue the conversation. Sarah is an assistant professor at, of English at Harvard University. She's affiliated with the Harvard Center for the Environment and co-creator with Robin Kelsey um, with the Environment Forum at the Mahindra Center here on campus. Um, her education comes from Carleton College, an MFA from New York University, uh, PhD from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And her interests are in Anglophone literatures, climate fiction, environmental justice writing, post-colonial and decolonial theory, Petro aesthetics, which you alluded to, and environmental futurism. And I just met Sarah and I cannot tell you how excited I am to continue our conversation from this shared conversation with the three of us. Sarah, bless you. Thank you so much for being here. And it's your time.
Thanks so much for having me, Terry. And Stan, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I, I am still just thinking deeply about everything that was just said. Um, so I, I want to start off um, by going back to these questions of utopianism, if you will um, indulge me. And I know that the LA Review of Books described you as our culture's last great utopian, as Terry mentioned. And I honestly hope that's not true. I hope there are more utopians out there and I hope that they keep working. But I do think that you are unusual in that you, you perhaps are a little bit more of a bureaucratic utopian than some of our other writers. And so when I've been reading through interviews that you've done, particularly around the Ministry for the Future, I was really struck by a comment you made that your definition of utopia has changed over time. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that. I would love to hear over your years as a writer, how your understanding of utopia has shifted. Sure, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I know that my sense of utopia was profoundly shaped by the um, painful experience of writing my novel Pacific Edge, which I did in 1988 and 89. And it was the third of my California novels, which went after the fall, dystopia, utopia. And I read a lot of utopias at that time and immersed myself in the literature and in the uh, radical political economies that were being written about in the 1980s. <coughs> Excuse me. So a lot of it came from Wells, H.G. Wells, who stubbornly wrote utopias from 1905 to 1945 when he died. <coughs> Excuse me. And he's redefined utopia as a, a dynamic process rather than a static end state. It wasn't about getting to the perfect society, he pointed out. He insisted. It was about setting in process um, a moving state of um, embitterment, that if things were getting better over time, this was a, a utopian history. So suddenly it became historical and dynamic. Very important, I think. And then <clears throat> the big utopias of the 70s, Le Guin's Dispossessed, uh, especially, but also Delaney's Triton, Joanna Russ's The Female Man, and the whole feminist utopian tradition. These were all about conflict and about defending um, good things against regression, against enemies. So suddenly the utopian story became one of conflict. And my my great friend Ian Banks, uh, his culture series is very much about the fight that it would take to protect positive uh, cultures from attacks from outside. Um, so all these things were going on in my mind. And then came um, the problem of writing, well, Green Earth, um, um, New York 2140, the financialization of utopia and ministry for the future. How does it work to talk about utopia now? And then with climate change, the, the, to me, what I would say, and I think I've said it already, the bar gets lowered. If we dodge a mass extinction event in the 21st century, that is a utopian history for the 21st century. And uh, all the other outstanding problems that will remain, and they will, 
they can be solved over time, but you can't come back from extinctions. So now this is almost a, uh, Bill McKibben called ministry an anti-dystopia. And Jameson provides the gray mouse rectangle where you have the thing that it's not and the thing that is anti. So you have uh, utopia, um, non-utopia, utopia, anti-utopia, and then the anti-dystopia in the first position. So maybe at this point, we're in such a desperate moment that the anti-dystopia is as, is as utopian as you could get. Although the moment I say that, I'm thinking, well, look, we're just writing. Why not imagine, you know, the full utopia just as a kind of throwing down of the gauntlet? So it's an ongoing thing in my mind. Thank you for that. I, I like the idea of just throwing down the gauntlet and going for the full utopia. I think that's, um, especially for writers, one of the things that hopefully the literature and arts can bring to the table and keep that all in our minds um, moving forwards. So with that, I'd love to ask you more about COP26. I'm thinking about bureaucracy and these global level efforts to address the climate crisis. And I have to admit that following the events at um, COP26 in Glasgow this last month, I felt a, a sense of creeping jadedness. I feel like as someone in my 30s, um, it was hard not to watch the events unfold and feel um, right up against the edge of cynicism. Mm. So I'm curious, um, as someone who has spent years drafting a book about um, a UN agency that tackles the climate crisis and really tries to innovatively address it, what was it like for you to watch COP26 unfold? Well, it was supremely interesting, and I have not yet sorted out my impressions because it was 12 of the most intense days of my life, and I was continuously seeing more and more things that uh, altered what I thought just the day previous. Um, I, I was given a pass to go into all the meetings by the UK government, so I was a party to the Congress. It was a Congress of parties and I was a party. Uh, it would have been inappropriate to speak in the meetings where they were making deliberations and, and uh, negotiations, but I got to watch them. And it was indeed, as, as Jerry Carnivan pointed out in the LA Review of Books, uh, boring, in, but not, because they were meticulously dissecting sentences for their content. It was editing. It was writing and editing, but these sentences were going to become norms or laws, hopefully laws. And so they had weight as sentences. So suddenly writing was crucial. And they, I watched a group of 30 people spend an hour, a full hour, very calmly trying to figure out if their um, uh, graphic representations were the data, should the data be displayed in rows or in columns? And because of my wife's work, I know that this is very consequential for people comprehending the data. So I, I wasn't laughing too much, but I was laughing a little. And it was quite beautiful, except for this. It's going so slowly relative to the nature of the emergency that we're in now. And also COP is a, deliberately designed as a consensus. So um, all 190 nations have to sign off on every sentence or else it won't fly. That's why it's making such creeping progress. That's why its pronouncements are relatively cautious. 
Everybody has agreed to them, however, and that's quite an accomplishment. So sometimes I'd be as impressed as could be. This is the Paris Agreement. This is the Ministry for the Future in the real world, creating the frameworks by which we might squeak out of the a disaster. On the other hand, there are blockages. Um, these are promises only. The rich countries have not paid what they promised they were going to pay, and they didn't promise to pay much more. Um, it's really a case of the haves um, denying the haves not what is necessary to make the have-nots survive this crisis, and anger is going to result. So there was, along with meticulous care, there was also horrible existential um, angst and anxiety that what everybody was working so hard on was still not going to be enough. And so this is why it's kind of hard to pull out a single impression from COP26. It, it was messy. And perhaps inadequate. And but I've been saying all hands on deck, we need to do everything possible. So okay, we need to do the Paris Agreement uh, and these COP meetings. They are not going to be the solution, the sole solution to our problem. We're going to need everything else as well. Thank you for that. Yes, maybe just as we need many stories about climate change, um, we could tell many stories about the COP. 26 event as well. Yes. Um, I think for me, one of the disconcerting elements of watching COP26 unfold was the obvious gap in gender and generation between who is in positions of power and then who is often out on the streets as activists. So, um, you know, inside we have Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, Prince Charles, Scott Morrison, Naftali Bennett, right, our cast of characters. And then outside we have primarily um, young women activists. So I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg or, um, or perhaps someone like Vanessa Nakate or Shia Bastida. And it strikes me that we are at this moment in climate discourse where we are seeing questions of identity really come to the forefront and who has power and who has voice. And this made me really think about ministry for the future and the cast of characters that you have assembled in this ministry. And I'm, I'm wondering if that question of representation or giving um, equal distribution of voices was on your mind as you assembled your characters? Yes, it was. Um, and, and yet I also needed characters that I could imagine um, in the interactions that I wanted to write. So I needed Mary to be a middle-aged woman bureaucrat, uh, one of a crowd of them that I admire so much, diplomats. They've changed the world, and it's demonstrable quantitatively that women leaders have done better in the pandemic for their countries than men leaders, and it needs to be pointed out. I can say something that I found rather comforting, and I bet you will too. The actual negotiators, the people in the rooms negotiating the Paris Agreement and the COP26 Agreement, were um, more than 50% women. They were... Uh, lawyers, diplomats, they were in their 30s, they were professionals, they were serious people, and they were meticulously working over these sentences in a spirit of solidarity and mutual respect. And then there would be the occasional um, guy in his 70s, there were very few of us as older or older than me, 
who had been knocking around in the system forever, often English or in an, in an English manner, you might say, uh, calmly adding their part. So there is discrepancies going on. And I would say that the protests outside were beautifully everybody. So the leadership, maybe these young women, but the marches in Glasgow, I saw all three of them, or at least I saw three of them. The biggest one I marched with because I had to cross the street. The the first one, 10,000 people, I, st- I stood at the starting bridge with Bill McKibben and watched them pass. It was Friday. People had brought their kids out of school, out of preschools. There were family groups, school groups. It was an everybody. People had come from all over Scotland. It was primarily Scottish, this march. And the, the posters are hilarious. There was a spirit of celebration that they were able to uh, represent for the people of the world there. So um, you get back to the gerontocracy of the uh, older men that are running the countries, the big countries, who are very often beholden to the fossil fuel industries. They are not quite um, all Joe Manchins, but a lot of them are heavily beholden. And they're ossified, you might say, to the moment. On the other hand, Joe Biden, it seems to me, has decided he's going to be FDR. Why not? He's different than he was back when he was through the rest of his career. And he's hired a brain trust of younger people who he's listening to, who are actually forming the policies. And nothing's perfect, but it's way better than I thought it would be when he uh, won office. So uh, it's so granular. Um, But I would say I saw some good things there going on at COP26, um, both inside and outside the Blue Zone. Thanks for that, Stan. I'm going to hold that image of um, the march in my head. I think so often we think about technological solutions for climate change, and I think the march is my favorite one, Um, a a march. Yes. I want to add mass action to keep the political leadership's feet to the fire, to have our political representatives do what we elected them to do and to cope with this problem by way of legislation and over running roughshod over the fossil fuel interests. These mass actions, I think, are important and crucial to the process. So I have to ask you a little bit about climate fiction. I feel like I get to speak with um, climate fiction authors, but often it's someone who has published one work in the field. And one of the great pleasures of speaking with you is that you've been working in this field for decades now, and um, I think have a longer view of it than many writers. So I'm curious, particularly how you approached an ending in the ministry for the future. Because I think so often, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I think so often climate fiction has a little bit of an ending problem. Um, We often wind up with characters who either go back to a sort of like neo-primitive farming subsistence scenario, or we wind up with just utter apocalyptic disaster as though the only solution is to just wipe out the entire plot. And Ministry for the Future, I think, is interesting because it ends so subtly. And I I would love to hear whether that was deliberate or whether the plot um, developed that way organically. Ooh, I can, it seems to me I always knew that after the rapidity of um, 
of the action in ministry for the future that I wanted to follow Mary into a retirement where she slows down and we see what it might be like to live in a world where you didn't think things were imminently going to smash, where you could see the light at the end of the tunnel and you could relax a little. I wanted that relief. And I wanted a, uh, in musical terms, I wanted a retard from the speed of the action through most of the novel. So these are formal considerations. And in terms of content, I, I knew for the longest time that the, the novel had to end with the sentence, this is not the end, some version of that. So that the last two words are the end, but the sentence is, this is not the end. To leave you with a little knot, last sentences are extremely important to me. If you look through my novels, you'll see that every one of them has, I hope, a kind of a, uh, a, a sting in the tail kind of effect of a, a memorable final sentence. And I think I got one here too. And, and I know what you mean about climate fiction. I'll say that I've been doing it a long time. I love all the young climate fiction writers coming up. I'm, I'm a, a friends with some of the great climate fiction writers, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi and... Um, uh, Corey Doctorow, um, Jonathan Leatham has re recently written The Arrest. There's the young people writing what they call hope punk or solar punk. These are silly names. They really got to shift. I've told them this explicitly, like grandpa, you know, lecturing them. You've got to be utopian. Forget this punk bullshit. Um, and they laugh me off. Um, it's, a, it's a mistake to use punk as a suffix anymore. But, and also even literary movements, is that really a thing? Um, it's a marketing ploy, is it a good one? I, I have my doubts. Um, some individuals like Elliot Pepper has written a, a great climate fiction novel then he doesn't uh, bother to try to join a movement. Uh, so all these things are happening. I, I confess I resented the whole name climate fiction because it seemed to me every time science fiction gets interesting and pointed, people make up a different name for it so that they don't have to admit that they're reading science fiction. And I had a certain defensiveness that is a community pride type thing, but I had to give up on that. Climate fiction is real. It's more important than my feelings about the old genre history. And so, um, I mean, I did mention it now, but I, most of the time I'm giving up on it. Climate fiction is real. It's near future science fiction by necessity. And it's doing interesting stuff, but Finding ways through doing the utopian angle, that's really hard, technically. You have to do crazy stuff like I do, and I've got some cred in the industry so that if I say I'm going to write hundreds of pages about bureaucrats doing boring things and arguing over laws, many publishers would just groan. Editors would say, you've got to be kidding me. You know, where's the car crashes? Where's the chase scene? And younger writers have to struggle with that. But maybe I've created a kind of a, um, uh, an umbrella, uh, a cover story for them. I love to know that there's somewhat of a mentorship circle within climate writers. That's lovely. Yes. Um, I, th I think you're right though to defend the genre's roots in science fiction. I always think of Octavia Butler and Parable of the Sower as such a crucial, yes. crucial work and someone who really bridges, um, I think, the, the fields. Um, yes. For me, at least, also a reminder that um, climate fiction stemming out of science fiction is now encompassing other elements of the literary landscape as well. 
Um, so we're seeing it like quite quite porous, I think, within contemporary literature. Yes, um, I don't because I don't think you can dodge it anymore. So literary fiction is now having to take it on, and there's been some great ones, um, Lydia Millet and some others. There have been some wonderful examples out of literary fiction. Yes. <clears throat> You mentioned um, before our Zoom started officially that you were thinking of Ministry for the Future as somewhat of a, an ending for yourself or your last word um, within climate fiction. I'm curious if that's um, like, like what leads you to that feeling? Well, um, I, I am not contracted to write any more books. I've done seven novels in 11 years. Um, my wife just retired. And, uh, but crucially, I will write more fiction, but I think I don't want to get in the way of ministry for the future. I don't want to obscure it by uh, doing knockoffs or sequels or partials, or um, I think I want to keep it, the space around it clear for people to see it. And, it, and it's sort of a swan song and a final statement in a way. I got, I got nothing, um, but I've been pondering you know, life goes on and I'm thinking about the Arctic. I'm thinking about the, what, if things, what would a pure utopia be like um, to describe and inject into our real world in the year, you know, 30 years past the end of ministry or 50 years past. Um, these are unwelcome <laughs> thoughts. I don't want to do it, um, but something will come to me, but not in a rush. Yes. That makes sense. Um, I think like Mary, you deserve as much rest as you would like. Yes. Um, I'm curious since publishing ministry, if you've had any moments where life seems to be imitating your fiction. I know other climate writers will sometimes speak about this. Nathaniel Rich will say it was a very eerie feeling to have Hurricane Sandy hit New York after having written Odds Against Tomorrow. Um, or Amitav Ghosh will comment on how odd it was to um, have a hurricane hit the Sunderbones right after, um, well, not right after, but after riding the Hungry Tide. So I'm curious if you've had moments like this um, as someone who delves less perhaps into um, those sorts of apocalyptic scenarios, but more in a bureaucratic sense. Well, sure. I think this is somewhat coincidental. You write about um, a changing climate and the climate is changing. And so, you know, I get uh, emails or I can see mentions of my work every time there's a storm that hits New York or a flood hits Washington, D.C. It goes on like that. But this is there's also the 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 sudden cyber attack on a meat processing plant or I'm afraid there are ominous parts of ministry that will now be connected with various acts of uh, sabotage, etc. It's more a vibe I was trying to create of a future history you could believe in. And as we go forward, the one thing I would say was I got so much wrong that I will not be particularly comforted by getting things right. My timeline in particular is completely off. And this is a good thing. Things that I was talking about happening in the 2030s and 2040s, they're happening now. There's not going to be a, a wasted 2020s. Um, th there's a sentence in there, the 2030s were zombie years. Not going to happen. Uh, and this is because of the pandemic. The pandemic was a slap in the face uh, to all of us and has accelerated all sorts of thoughts and actions in good ways. 
So I would just say um, for science fiction writers, weird coincidences will happen and have nothing to do with your predictive powers. That makes sense. I generally think novels are terrible predictive tools, but there's um, that's not a reason not to read them. I think sometimes they shape the future um, more than predict it. One thing they're good at, science fiction novels, as, as they go by their sell-by date and you look back at them, say science fiction novels from the 50s, that was the future they were thinking about then. So um, this is St. Augustine, you know, or any t- uh, theories of time. Um, that was the future of that past. And so you can actually recover it by reading old science fiction. And there's a lot of charm in, in, and uh, illumination in that. What did people back then think was possible in their futures? And of course, it didn't happen. But that will happen to us also. Yeah, it, it makes it exciting to watch it unfold, I will say, as a literary critic. <laughs> So um, Stan, I have to ask you, I'm curious um, about the conversations that the novel has prompted for you around geoengineering. Um, When I was reading this book, I was quite struck by the way that the geoengineering experiments that are portrayed in Ministry for the Future are subtle um, in a way that I think is somewhat unique for fiction. I think fiction and I'm thinking films here too, often portray geoengineering geoengineering experiments as quite apocalyptic and dire. And I'd love to hear your thoughts behind that decision. Well, I'm always trying to think what would really happen. This is um, a a commitment to a, a kind of proleptic realism. I like my novels to feel real so that they work as novels uh, of any kind work for me. So it's a reality effect or uh, Roland Barthes, the effect of the real. Um, And in in fact, the reality of geoengineering is that we don't have that much power to um, change things apocalyptically and for good. There's solar radiation management throwing dust up in the atmosphere. Um, For five years, it'll be lower temperature than the dust falls to the ground. You're not forced to keep doing it forever. You're not going to create a snow piercer. These are, you know, the tendency of fiction to do um, a kind of vulgarization of Frankenstein. There are some things mankind was not meant to know or to do. The Faustian, uh, like if you do something powerful in nature, then you have made a deal with the devil. These are old and, you know, um, um, Hayden White is very good on how our, our ideas of history and how most of our stories are, are based on very ancient stories that we are remodeling. And so they're not appropriate. And I, I guess I'm more of a, you know, a Balzac, George Eliot, um, Conrad, that strand of realism that tries to reflect the real even in imaginative works. Um, it's better that way to show what would really happen because it becomes more interesting as such. You don't have to suspend your disbelief and say, okay, I'm reading a fantasy here, so I'll just go with it. I really appreciated the portrayal of geoengineering in the book because I feel like it's one of those issues that within environmental conversations um, is often skirted around and there's quite a bit of disagreement about um, 
I think Elizabeth Colbert refers to her, her feelings about geoengineering as respectful terror. And I think for me, um, it's always a question of power and a, I think the terror of power. And I was um, fascinated by the way it plays out within ministry where we have a government deciding to um, unilaterally produce this solar geoengineering rather than a global decision. Yeah, well, um, Betsy Colbert's book is a very fine one, but um, it wouldn't be a white sky. Um, so somebody, some scientist gave her an image. It's not right. After Pinatubo, we had slightly redder sunsets for five years. We did not have white skies. So um, this fear of geoengineering, the more you know, the less afraid you become. A lot of it is a moral hazard. What if the fossil fuel industry manages to convince governments to um, do solar radiation management in a way that means that we're stuck with it forever and that way they can get away with burning more fossil fuels? They call this the moral hazard argument. Well, the moral hazard argument had teeth back around 1995. And ever since then, we've come into a situation of all hands on deck where we might have an emergency where it's so clear that we have to decarbonize that the other things that we do in mitigation are not going to obscure that necessity of decarbonization. So the people who are making plans to do governance for solar radiation management and try to understand it better, um, they are doing this as a kind of an emergency, pull the, break the glass and pull this lever if people start dying all over the world in mass numbers, see if we can depress the temperature for a few years and, and, and pursue our, our mitigation and our decarbonization even more vigorously than ever before. So that's the, the sense in which they're thinking of it. And one thing to remember is we are not that powerful. We can't stop global uh, ocean acidification. We can't restore the, um, the previous pH of the ocean. We can't um, stop the permafrost from melting. If it starts to melt fast enough and the methane is released and we start various feedback loops, then the idea that our Faustian powers are a danger to us are just ludicrous. The, the real problem would be that we have no power at all, except that we've managed to set off a mass extinction event that we can't get out of. Stan, I feel like um, I could keep speaking for, with you forever, um, for hours, but we need to wrap up. So I just want to say, I think these thoughts about a terrifying and beautiful future um, are a good place to end. Mm. Um, I just want to thank you and Terry for spending the evening with me. This was a, a delight. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you, Stan, for such an evocative, provocative evening. I am forever going to hear your words, we're just writing, so why not imagine? And conversely... <laughs> I, should keep, I should pay more attention to that myself. <laughs> Go ahead. I was just thinking, conversely, you could say, you know, we're just here for such a short time why not imagine things differently? And I couldn't help but thinking about the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition who helped the Good Friday Agreement take shape and take hold as another example of, of direct action that you were describing. And I wanted to share with our friends who are listening how in a conversation with Stuart Brandt, um, you spoke of two axioms and this really moved me. The one you spoke about is bigger is better, more is better, the one that we've been worshiping. And you suggested that we might replace it with, quote, 
a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends to do otherwise, unquote, from Aldo Leopold, uh, his beautiful land ethic from a sand candy almanac. Yes. What I love about what you are doing in this novel is creating a scenario we can believe in and that we can act upon, a series of thought experiments with a multitude of characters, stand-ins for each of us in our totality and diversity of opinions, strategies, and temperaments. I see the ministry for the future as a prophetic text that is a force field for change, each in our own way with the gifts that are ours, creating a collective mosaic of actions that will lead us to a climate of the future. Perhaps we can close this evening with your own words, Stan, that you gave to Mary Murphy at the end of the book. We will keep going, she reassured them all, but mostly herself. We will keep going, we will keep going because there is no such thing as fate because we never really come to an end. Thank you so much for all you have brought to us, especially a new future. Thank you, Terry, profoundly. It's been a huge pleasure. I want to also just make a brief shout out to the Harvard Divinity School, the home of a science fiction writer named Chris Adkins, but also important work of um, reestablishing the sacredness of the earth, a kind of Gaia religion, science as devotion. This is all necessary work. You're right at the heart of something crucial. So good luck with that project. And I hope that I get to walk with you in the Sierras at one point. <laughs> That'd be great. Thank you. And now a cup of tea.
sponsor, Harvard Divinity School, the Constellation Project, the Center for the Study of World Religions, Religion and Public Life, Theosophy Tees, the Planetary Health Alliance. Copyright 2021, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.